Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In Woody Point, Ella Manuel acquired her first cats. She was drawn into the feline world through her friends, the Campbells of Black Duck. Here is the tale of her first two cats and their ancestor, Ginny Down by the Bow. On the subject of cats, better people than I have written, but let me introduce you to my two. They are white with an inverted V of deep amber over the nose and up to the ear tips along the spine with honey-yellow blobs on either side, and on their tails concentric circles of amber and white. They look in repose, like delicate china ornaments, and in movement so full of grace as to make one's heart leap at the sight. They come from a long line of farm cats, owned by the Campbells of Black Duck, and I believe that among their ancestors they count Ginny Down by the Bow though she must be their great-grandmother to the tenth. She was so named for having very long hind legs and extremely short front ones, and her paternity was much in question. Some even said that her father was a lynx. She rode piggyback on the old sheepdog and was reputed to be the only undefeated enemy of the saucy bull that lived nearby. Victor Campbell told me that one morning years ago, while he was fishing on Harry's River, he had left his small canoe on the beach by the pool. As he was playing a very large salmon, he saw their bull racing down the shore towards him. He had broken out of his field and was very angry. Victor waded out into the stream until he was nearly up to his waist, trying all the time to hold his line tight, as one must when playing a salmon. And when the bull saw Victor was out of reach, he hoisted the canoe on his horns and went careening around the field. Ginny, down by the bow, dashed after him, and seeing that his head was covered by the canoe, she made a flying leap and landed on his back. That made him angrier still. What a commotion! Finally, the bull ran into a wire fence, and Victor managed to capture him. Now, I had never in my wildest moments dreamed of owning cats, or any other pets for that matter. So you might ask, what came over me? Well, I've always had a lurking interest in the black duck cats. It seemed to me an interesting project to maintain such a long line from Ginny Down by the Bow to the present. When I had last visited a month or so ago, I found Mother Cat with five kittens she was rearing, and was told by the sentimental owners that they were the last of the line, father having disappeared in July and not returned. So the entire litter was being preserved. Several times during the visit, my host and hostess wondered out loud where they would find good homes for three of them, and I, being much obliged to the Campbells for past and present friendship, finally decided to take two in the hope that somebody in Woody Point would in turn like two special cats. There are thousands of the ordinary kind around there. Well, I was in it up to my neck once a decision was made, for suddenly the matter of names became important. I spent a near sleepless night, what with Mother and her five hurtling from one end to the other of the flat roof overhead, and my pondering and rejecting names one after the other. You see, 
I was well aware of the importance of naming cats, for had not the great English poet T.S. Eliot himself alerted me? When you notice a cat in profound meditation, the reason, I tell you, is always the same. His mind is engaged in a rapt contemplation of the thought of the thought of the thought of his name, his ineffable, effable, effa-ineffable, deep and inscrutable singular name. A good thing he warned me, else I would have thought that my cats in rapt contemplation were busy digesting the last bit of herring. I only hope that my two are satisfied with their new names of Samson and Delilah, not that they pay any attention to the sound of them when invited to come in out of the wet. And still on the subject of names, there are moments when I am as concerned about the mental health of my cats as I used to be about humans. Some psychologist recently said that children began what you tell them they are. Look what I've done to Samson. He displays strange characteristics and grows at such a rate, if he won't move temples in his prime, he'll certainly be able to frighten foxes. He grows and grows and grows, and he shoves Delilah from her feeding dish with threatening growls, all the time gobbling like crazy. He swipes his paw across her delicate little nose when he thinks nobody watches. Delilah, on the other hand, eats like a Victorian lady as if chewing were vulgar. She's slim and lithe with appealing softness of the eye and the voice of a lyric soprano. Samson is a raucous pop singer. He's also persistent and demanding. Open the door, he seems to say, or I'll drive you mad with my yowling. Delilah sits by the door for minutes without a sound, hoping I'll notice her. But once outside, I swear she thinks everyone in Woody Point is watching. She climbs on the killick and poses. She runs up and down the boulder, pausing to show herself the best effect. And once, I watched her for several minutes as she sat on her haunches, for all the world like a rabbit, front paws folded under her chin. I think she was contemplating the long grass, moving wildly and beautifully in the wind. Samson, on the other hand, hurdles himself menacingly on fallen leaves and grabs at the moving reeds. At least he did until it snowed. And now they both heave themselves through it, roll, play with the flakes they stir up and run in circles as if demented. Inside the house, Delilah is an occupational hazard. She worries pencils all around the house. She examines books and papers. The particularly strange ones she even chews as if to say to me, that's what I think of your peace proposals, your student uprisings. She's even tried to insert her head into the earpieces of my spectacles, and if she can get on my desk, she will, with delicate and tentative movements, scramble papers into an impossible mess. As to the tape recorder, the wheels going round inside glass rouse her curiosity to a degree only matched by her mystification with water running into the bathtub. As I said, she's an occupational hazard. Samson now assails only the typewriter. No amount of biffs on the claws from retreating or advancing keys can teach him to leave well enough alone. I never cease to be fascinated by the difference in their approach to the hazards or the joys of cat life. One day I had a large mirror propped on the floor against the wall. Delilah happened by, gazed for a moment, let out an agonized wail, and retreated behind a door. Samson strutted in to see what was going on, looked 
for a split second and whipped his paw behind the mirror with a menacing gesture. And then he went all the way round the mirror and sought Delilah to tell her it was really nothing threatening. Delilah nibbles flies and wood. Samson chews buttons, no matter what their attachment. And that can be painful when the attachment is one's shirt, and one is lying prone, absorbed in a radio program or a book. It can send you almost as high as one of Delilah's spectacular leaps. In my small house now, any knitting in progress must be hidden in an obscure place. The lovely copper daisy which my artist friend gave me, and which stands in an old brown bottle, is regretfully stacked on the highest shelf. A handsome, hand-woven Welsh rug had to go in a cupboard, and worst of all, my leisurely and sometimes slovenly habits have changed. No longer can I lie in bed till the ten o'clock news, or finish the book which fell out of my hands last night. I must let the cats in from the unheated back room, or they'd gnaw holes through the door. Then they want out to see what the weather is, and then they want in. If in, and I sneak back to bed, one of them immediately inserts a body between me and my book, as if she could read. And I should like to know how they communicate with each other. I've seen them put noses together. Perhaps that's how. But that does not explain how either knew that I was making ready to go to Cornerbrook overnight, and they were to stay with a friend. That they did know was evident when they disappeared for so many hours that the journey was indefinitely postponed. Perhaps they knew the storm was coming and wished to circumvent me, for it so transpired that the roads that day were almost impassable. How do they know when I'm about to put a needle on a record when they can't see me? They dashed for safety, because once I did start a record going with the volume high, and the music took off with a blast from full orchestra, enough to frighten anyone. And when they finally emerged from hiding with tails high, they ignored me pointedly. And now, excuse me please, I have to let Samson and Delilah out. They've had enough of all this talk. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening and tune in to the next episode for Ella's Trek along the old coastal road to Sally's Cove. Mm-hmm.